You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Rory Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, which brokers Ryro's favourites, a look at Islamic finance, and some new trophies for the IR Magazine Awards Europe. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast, a weekly roundup of the top stories from around the world of investor relations. We are operating at capacity in the IR Magazine studio this week as we have Tim Heeman, Garnet Roach and Condice de Montpetit. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. And our first story this morning concerns a study of the world's greatest risks um, produced by the Economist Intelligence Unit, which names the potential presidency of Donald Trump as one of its top 10 risky moves. The research firm warns that he could disrupt both the global economy and heighten political and security risks in the US. Trump gaining entry to the White House ranks above Britain leaving the European Union or an armed conflict occurring in the South China Sea, but below Russia creating a new Cold War situation, uh, you know, with its interventions in Ukraine and Syria, or China encountering a hard landing, uh, sharp economic slowdown. The EIU uses a scale of 1 to 25 to assess the potential harm of a number of potential events in the world, with Mr. Trump being given a healthy score of 12, which is about the same level of risk as, um, quote, the rising threat of jihadi terrorism disabling the global economy. There's anything about uh, bad hair day risk. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit more than a bad hair, uh, hair day. Um, thus far, Mr. Trump has given away very few details of his policies, and these tend to be prone to constant revision, the EIU said in its global risk assessment. He has been exceptionally hostile towards free trade, including notably NAFTA, and has repeatedly labelled China as a currency manipulator. Um, the EIU also warned its strong language directed towards Mexico and China in particular could escalate rapidly into a, quote, trade war. The EIU forecast that domestic and foreign policymaking would be undermined too, unsurprisingly. The question is, are IR teams going to have to start briefing their investment communities about their plans for when and if Trump is elected? Because it sounds like it's going to have some... Post-Trump. Yeah, the post-Trump period. Post-Trumpatic stress. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. There's also there was a story going around this week so that Simpsons predicted that he would he would be president at one point when they look at Bart and Lisa's futures fifteen years in the future and Trump has been president and mucked it all up as well. And unfortunately they've got quite a good track record of predicting the future. Do they? Yes. Um you can look that up later, <laughs> but they do. Um so let's hope they're wrong with yeah, this one. Let's really hope they are. Because I don't that sounds like Hurricane Trump wouldn't be that that fun to endure. Well, anyway, we will bring you the latest in the U.S. elections, obviously, because that's what we're we're about. But first up, something a bit close to home. Um, and Condice, you found some new research which has been looking into who the best brokers are. Yes, uh, our latest Rotor report reveals that um, this year's winner is... Drumroll, please. Bank of America Merrill Lynch, who comes up on top again with um, nearly a third of respondents using the broker for Rochos, with an average of 1.4 events. Uh, then we have J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Deutsche Bank, Morgan Stanley, and Citi in the top five, uh, with more than a quarter of IROs uh, reportedly using their services. And these are these are the ones picked out by IROs, aren't they? Um, I guess volume isn't necessarily everything. Which broker put on the most impressive ratios? Which one were IROs most blown away by? Well, IROs were indeed surveyed on who they, they believe put on the, the best quality events, and it's... Drumroll, please. Credit Suisse which is a joint seventh on the most used list. And um, the bank was cited by 31 respondents as the organizer of the most remarkable 100% committed to with the target list roadshows. IROs also praised JP Morgan's good logistics and ability to offer firms pre-meeting intelligence, follow-through, and securing of buy-side meetings. 
They also approved of uh, Bank of America Mary Lynch's great execution and Barclays Capital's proactive and responsive service. Delivered by brokers with a sound knowledge of the industry and the investors and uh, good attention to detail. And when it comes to regional preferences, are there any variations there? Well, City, which is uh, Asia's most used broker, is cited for the good quality of its U.S. meetings. And Deutsche Bank, uh, the top choice for European IOs, is lauded for its good meetings with a mix of old and new funds and the delivery of a nice written report after the event. Also interesting is that uh, European IROs use an average of 7.5 brokers for roadshows, while uh, North American firms use at least um, with only 4.8. And what about the most visited cities in the world? Where, where are IROs going? Well, um, that didn't change much uh, since last year, at least for the, the top six. Unsurprisingly, we have more drum rolls. <laughs> <laughs> New York, still on to, at the top of the charts, with 83% of IROs visiting the city, followed by Boston, you know, a big hub for major institutional investors, and London, Chicago, San Francisco, and Frankfurt. And then you have Toronto, which uh, went up one notch, Paris, Los Angeles, Edinburgh, Zurich, Geneva, and Amsterdam, um, and that's practically in the same order as last year. So no new exotic locations this year, like uh, Bangkok or anything like that? No, so nothing very um, exciting or, or new. No no um, Sao Paulo or uh, Tirana in Albania or <laughs> uh, Abu Dhabi uh, coming up in the, in the top 20 this year. No, but it is interesting you mention that, Condice, because I think Garnet is going to tell us a bit more about some Islamic finance, which I imagine might be the, the kind of people you're going to see were you on a roadshow trip to Abu Dhabi. Yeah, so I actually, um, the idea to look into this a bit came from um, an article in the Financial Times um, that I saw, I think, last month, reporting that Sharia-compliant funds um, had suffered their worst sales in four years, falling more than 74% on 2014 numbers. The article talks about low oil prices, of course, and also regional tensions, both affecting sales of the funds, which avoid companies that make money from the sale of alcohol, pork and pornography, for example, as well as meeting other principles of Islamic finance. Another report from the Malaysia International Islamic Financial Centre last month highlights the same trends, noting that the number of Islamic funds declined during the fourth quarter of last year, while total global Islamic assets under management dropped to $58 billion um, from $60.65 billion at the end of the previous year. And whose expertise have you sought uh, on this subject? Who have you been talking to? I've been speaking to Magali Mouquet, who is the executive director responsible for investor relations, among other things, at Dubai-based Emirates REIT, with a portfolio that includes the index tower I discovered. It's actually my favourite building in Dubai. It has a nice brutalist look to it. She says that while while the stock price took a bit of a hit in 2014 when oil prices hit what was then a five-year low, the trust is in a strong position today. Um, she says that for Emirates REIT, adhering to Islamic finance principles has actually brought only opportunities. She does highlight, though, that, quote, real estate is by its essence very much Sharia-compliant. Even today, Magali points to a lack of Sharia-compliant products in the market and says that for Emirates REIT, being Sharia-compliant is an advantage. She says, quote, I have more investors because I have all the Sharia institutions. And most of the investors in the Emirate REITs, are they Sharia-compliant? Well, she explains that around 60% of the trust's investor base comes from regional GCC or Gulf Cooperation Council countries, um, and many of these are Sharia-focused. The trust also sees Sharia-focused investors from Malaysia and Indonesia, but it is looking to diversify. Magali says, quote, We are actively diversifying both geographically and between Sharia and non-Sharia investors so we can maintain a stable stock. This means that if a US investor goes out, a Saudi investor can easily come in. And how does she find, you know, the different types of investors? Do they have different focuses, different preferences? 
Well, she says that um, she actually gets very few questions from Sharia investors. As she explains, um, from the moment that they say they are Sharia compliant, these types of investors know what they're talking about and they really don't need to ask anything further. And instead, it's actually the non-Sharia investors that have the questions. She says, quote, sometimes they don't really understand what it means to be Sharia compliant, which translates as greater sustainability and more transparency in our accounts and across our business in general. Plus, she notes, she's not allowed to rent to any arms dealers. So that always helps. <laughs> that is good news. <laughs> and if it's not, you know, oil or regional macroeconomics that um, Magalie's grappling with, what are the challenges that she is seeing? Well, I asked her about this and she, she cites a slowdown in the real estate market as one of the challenges that she expects to be facing in the coming year, though she says this is more of a communication issue rather than a business challenge, since the trust has, quote, a good balance sheet to be in a buyer's market. Liquidity in banks is another challenge, and also the trust's share price. That's a bit controversial to say share price, isn't it? Well, yes. Um, while that might not quite be the responsibility of investor relations, Magali says that she is monitoring the share price quite a lot. She says, quote, we're at a huge discount right now, so it's a great opportunity for investors, and she needs to make sure that people understand that. Well, I'm sure that's something that will be discussed at um, uh, the Middle East IR Society's uh, next conference in September. I know they, they sent out the Save the Date. Yes, I've just double-checked. I think it's on the 21st of September 2016 in Dubai. It's the 8th annual conference for the Middle East IR Society. We'll be able to find out a lot more there. It's, just, it's, it's, it's an area I don't, I've got to admit I don't know an awful lot about, but presumably we'll be hearing more and more in the future. Uh, but another another event in the future, very near future, that you can be looking forward to is the Iron Magazine Awards in Europe. We're having the American ones first, but um, Europe is coming up shortly after. And Tim, you've been you've been looking into a couple of the new trophies that we're going to be handing out on the night. Yes, this week we've opened the uh, the nominations for the new judged award categories that are taking place at our Europe Awards this year. As in previous years, most of the awards, including the big ones like the Grand Prix, are going to be voted for by investors and analysts only. But uh, there's going to be, for Europe, four new judged award categories which you can nominate yourself for, and they're going to be decided by a, a panel of judges. And which awards are those? The first award is for best use of multimedia for IR. So in that one, we want companies to tell us the uh, innovative ways they're using things like video, audio, uh, infographics and webcasts in terms of their IR program. The second one is best investor event. So here we want to hear about capital markets days, site visits or other investor events that have you know, marked out your company's IR program in one way or another. The third one is best IR for a corporate transaction. So we're just looking at examples of where IR teams went above and beyond during a recent corporate transaction. Let us know the details there. And then the final one is rising star. So this is open to IR professionals under the age of 35. And this award is for looking for individuals who are bringing a fresh thinking or a unique approach to the profession. And and you said it's a judged award. Who's actually going to be sitting on the panel? I think I might know two people may already be in this room. Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you found us. The, the, the judging panel is going to be a mix of uh, IR magazine journalists and also investors. And so sitting on the panel will be uh, myself and also Condice. Also on the panel, we have Abigail Heron, Head of Responsible Investment Engagement at Aviva Investors and Nicholas Melouche, who's Head of Global Equities at Amundi. We're currently finalising the judging panel, and one or two uh, more names might be added to the list uh, before the deadline. And what are the criteria for entry, if a company wanted to enter themselves for these awards? Well, these categories are open to all investor relations officers and um, IR teams, any listed company domiciled in Europe. Entries can be sent in by the companies themselves, or they can be sent in by uh, service providers working for those companies. Uh, there's no fee to enter. 
Entrants need to upload an executive summary explaining why they or their clients should win, including, if possible, measurable results and also any supporting documents. Uh, a bit of advice here. I've been on these uh, judging panels before. Try and keep the executive summary to one page and don't upload a ton of supporting documents. Just trying to make, the, make life a bit easier for the judging panel. I think what Tim means by that is that he'd really, really like a few annual reports to read over the <laughs> weekend or something like that. And finally, important thing to note is the deadline for nominations is Thursday, April the 14th. Um, after that, the judging panel will narrow down the, uh, all the entries into a short list and then we'll have a, have a call to decide who the winners are in the different areas. Uh, excitingly, a few nominations have already come in. I thought you were about to reveal who they were, but I guess that's a little bit too too early. No, I think we'll keep that under wraps <laughs> until the shortlist. Well, separate from the European Awards, there's also uh, the small matter of the Iron Magazine Awards US 2016, which are happening just before them. There's still time to grab your ticket for them. Uh, they're taking place on the Thursday, March 31st at the Cipriani Wall Street. For more information and see which companies are nominated for a trophy on the evening, point in your browser at irmagazine.com forward slash US 2016. There is, of course, still time to vote in the People's Choice category for, for those awards. And obviously keep tuned to the website for more updates as and when they come, including the shortlist for this new these new European awards. Um, that's just about all we've got time for this week guys thanks again for coming along thank you and we will see you next time goodbye Bye. bye you've been listening to the ticker podcast from ir magazine for free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis register at irmagazine.com or download the app